Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. I just want to start off today by discussing um, an issue that we thought might have gone away. That's the issue of water charges here in this country. Um, earlier this week, Irish Water warned that water supply is already under pressure, despite the fact we're in early May. Um, they have created what they call a conservation calculator to try and help people to understand how much water they're using and how much they can conserve but they also say that 53% of householders admit in a survey to wasting water. Um, and they also admit that despite progress, 38% of uh, water supply has been lost through leakage. Um, and when I saw these headlines from Irish Water, it just got me thinking to the whole thinking about the whole water charges debate in this country. Um, roughly 65% of people paid water charges because they recognised, number one, um, water charges would generate the revenues necessary to invest in the water infrastructure. And secondly, and I think more importantly, um, if you charge people for something, they will seek to conserve something. So the fact that water is free means that there is absolutely no onus on people to conserve its usage. So um, it, it, it just brought me back. I was 100% in favour of water charges at the time. And um, I remain 100% in favour. And I believe that the back down by the government at the time um, in response to a minority of left-wing politicians, at least initially, 
uh, was a total show of political cowardice. And um, I think it, it, it's, it started a very dangerous precedent in Irish politics. Do you charge for water? I have a water meter. That's optional. It's not obligatory. The, the way it works is that you can choose actually to be on some fixed tariff or on a water meter. And people basically choose on the basis of their water usage. If they're a large family or a large number of people living in one dwelling, they would go for the fixed tariff. If it's like me, there aren't very many people in my house, then you go on a water meter. And at the moment, I pay £41 a month. What's that? That's about €48 Euros a month for all of my water. I can remember having a water meter 30, 40 years ago here in the UK. I can remember my own parents back in the 1960s paying water rates, as they were called back then. They were part of the rating system, or at least they had the title, the word rates associated with them. They've never been controversial. Uh, the only time they're ever controversial here is when the water companies were privatised and some charges were seen to go up and there were issues around that. But the, the principle of paying for your water has never um, been a political hot potato here or any kind of potato here, to be honest. Because as you say, it's it's regarded as you know just another one of those things that we consume. It's you know as basic to human life as food. We're expected to pay for food um, and we're, we expect to pay for water over here. In Wales, we're very lucky because the water company is a non-profit, which, which helps. And I think that you can structure these things accordingly. But it is just one of those little facts of life. And I'm, I must admit that when I lived in Ireland, I could never, ever get my head around the idea that it had become politically toxic to think or even talk in the way that we are today about water charges and the way that it has been hijacked by the left. Because there's, there's a fundamental pr principle that economists you know, right back at what I would call O-level economics would tell you that if you um, make something free at the point of delivery, the only way you can ration a scarce resource is by queuing for it. That's that's what um, systems like the National Health Service here in the UK and, and your health service here is that if you don't charge for something, it will be rationed in some way. It has to be unless it's in infinite supply. Water is not immune to those forces as well. And as you say, the, the your water or company in, in Ireland is saying that um, there is a risk for all sorts of reasons um, of water rationing coming because um, the resources haven't been put in to deliver the, the, the quantity demanded by the Irish population. But it's the political toxicity of it that, that baffles me and the way in which the left have chosen this to be uh, a hill to die on because it, it, it makes no logical uh, or economic, or indeed human sense at all, not to charge for water. Ah, well, that's the left in this country. We, we have spoken uh, a few times on various podcasts about the constant narrative we get from the left here about how bad Ireland is on so many different fronts. Uh, there was a piece of data published by the Central Statistics Office last week. It's called the Survey of Income and Living Conditions. And the key headlines from that latest survey are that incomes are up, income inequality is down, at risk of poverty is down, deprivation is flat, and consistent poverty is down. So on a whole range of metrics, um, Ireland is doing well in terms of addressing the inequality issue. And um, 
there is there is no doubt about it. If you look at the level of gross earnings, you know there is significant inequality in Ireland. But then, when you apply the progressive tax system to those earnings, uh, you end up with a significant um, reduction in inequality. So um, there wasn't a peep from the left about these survey results last week, as is typically the case. So I think it's really, really important to get out there and try and correct and direct this narrative. You know, Ireland um, is a pretty decent country. We are doing well on many different fronts. Uh, We do have challenges with housing. We do have challenges with health. But generally, uh, the quality of life is pretty decent here. Generally, the majority of people are pretty happy here, as happy as people can be. Uh, But yet we get this constant narrative of misery from the left. Uh, Pisses me off, quite frankly. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The um, I haven't delved into the numbers in quite the way that you have, Jim. But uh, I noticed that our friend of this podcast, Seamus Coffey, uh, did a lot of work post the publication of those numbers, and he drew out some really interesting facts based on the numbers. Uh, one of the things he did is that he took two of the indicators that they use, which is uh, a measure first of all of deprivation, and secondly an at risk of poverty measure combine that to have a look at how that sort of uh, consistent poverty rate, as it's called, has has behaved in Ireland. As far as I can tell, it's as low as this series has ever been, Um, certainly uh, going back a long way. And the the other thing is that the Gini coefficient, which is the way in which proper statisticians measure inequality, fell. And I think it fell to either its lowest ever or certainly the lowest this century. Um, I'd have to check that. But anyway, the point that you make about falling inequality in Ireland, um, I think is 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 well made and um, is backed up by the numbers. And I, for one, would probably like to take a, a closer look at the numbers now that you mention them. Um, but how, how one of the interesting questions for me is, is, is that point that you and I have raised on the podcast several times, which is that this dystopian hellhole that is that is Ireland that is painted by the left in general Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times and Sinn Féin the next the government in waiting as they're called now in the wake of the election results last week or Taoiseach in waiting for Mary Lou Macdonald how they've managed to get away with how do you manage to fool quite so many people into because you know it's I suppose it's by repetition. You just say dystopian hellhole. Ireland is a terrible place. We have the worst health service in the world. We have a unique housing crisis that no nobody else has. And moreover, if you're Sinn Fein, we have the solutions, and that we will be able to um, solve these problems, turn this dystopian hellhole into a land of milk and honey, um, very quickly with these very obvious policies that nobody else seems willing to try. What is it about? our political and social systems that allows people to, frankly, get away with this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a case of not letting the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, I I was fascinated last Saturday morning. I heard a Sinn Féin candidate in Northern Ireland who had just been elected an MLA. Um, He was talking about what Sinn Féin wanted to do in Northern Ireland and he alluded to the economic prosperity in the South um, as something that he would like to aspire to. 
Um, and, and that that was an extraordinary statement because it flies totally in. I agree with him, but it flies totally in the face of what his colleagues in Sinn Féin south of the border consistently claim about Ireland. Um, and as you say, dystopian hellhole is the word that comes to mind. But I guess if you think it, this is all politics, of course, uh, because the, the left and Sinn Féin, um, you know, that, that they, they have no chance of ever getting into government if they admit and play along with the story that Ireland is doing very well, actually, and that, you know, gov- governments are generally doing a reasonably good job uh, with obvious caveats in areas that I've mentioned, like health and housing, where there are still significant challenges. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it serves the political narrative. that That's quite simply it. And unfortunately, um, and it goes back to the cowardice of the political system in relation to water charges. Uh, unfortunately, the political system here on the other side of the barrier is incapable of actually standing up and making forceful arguments about the reality of the situation here. Um, I, I find it all very depressing. But I one guess of the things that strikes me, one of the things that strikes one of the things that strikes me about that, Jim, is that there, there seems to be certain truths that can't be told. And I know that there are issues that um, political analysts call the third rail of politics. The th- that third rail being the electrified rail that runs along train tracks. Then if you touch it you'll be electrocuted and you're, you're a goner, at least in political terms. It just seems to me that an awful lot of big, big issues are now third rail issues that you can't touch them. And if you take the issue of housing, for instance, which we know is a problem in Ireland, which we know is a problem in many countries, and the the truth that cannot be told about housing um, in every country is that, yes, there are domestic factors. Yes, there are domestic policies that we could do better. Um, We can uh, have a better housing stock that suits more people than it does. In every single country that I look at, there are better policies that could be followed. But the clue into the great truth that cannot be told is the fact that it is a global problem. Every rich country and not-so-rich country in the world has, in its own terms, a housing crisis. And this is the thing that people can't refer to. And we go on and on about this. And you know that I'm, what I'm about to say next is that it's going to be um, a global factor. There's a global thing driving house prices up alongside local issues. And that global thing is low interest rates. And um, that's a particular sort of economics point about this. But the sort of political thing that can't be said is that whatever the global and other factors are for housing, Every government in the world tries to solve this problem, and so far, virtually all of them, to a greater or lesser extent, fail. It is a a problem without certainly an easy solution, and maybe not a solution at all. And that's, I would say, is the definition of an intractable problem. Housing, and probably health as well, are phenomenally difficult problems to solve, verging on intractable. And of course, any politician that stands up and says, the reason why we have a housing crisis and the reason why we have a health crisis is because the problems are intractable. You can't say that. And so what I think is happening in Ireland, and I'd be very interested in your view on this, is that there's a sullen acceptance in certain government circles, ruling coalition circles, not, not widespread, but certain of them know all this. They can't say it because they know it'd be electoral suicide. But there is a sort of a sullen acceptance that the shinners have to be given their turn 
almost to find out how intractable the problems are and for them to be punished by the electorate in turn. What do you think about that? There's a lot of truth, I think, in that, that because, as you say, uh, if you look around the world, um, the two biggest issues you see spoken about are health and housing. Um, and I'm not aware of any country at the moment that really doesn't have a problem in that regard, that doesn't have a problem of homelessness, etc. Um, a, a city I visit a lot is San Francisco. And I mean, the homeless problem there is unbelievable. Uh, but there's, there's a couple of, I think, interesting reasons for that. Number one is the the sort of liberal government in San Francisco and in California generally, but particularly San Francisco, welcomes the homeless into the city because it's a sign of how liberal San Francisco is. And secondly, uh, the climate. Um, it's a, If you're going to be homeless, San Francisco is as good a place as any to be homeless. So people come from, apparently people come from all over the country to be there. But 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 that's just indicative of even a city like San Francisco, you know, huge problems with housing and homelessness. So it is it is a universal thing. Um, and it, it does actually appear to be an intractable problem. Um, and perhaps the political system knows that and just pays lip service to sorting it out. But um, it, it's interesting here over the last few weeks, um, in response to the refugees coming in from Ukraine, all sorts of solutions are being put in place at the moment, um, such as modular housing and so on. Um, and it's quite amazing that prior to the Ukraine crisis, there didn't appear to be any um, consideration really in real terms of these solutions to the housing crisis. So I hope one thing that will come out of the Ukraine situation here is that um, it might change some of the narrative on solving the housing issue and you know putting relatively straightforward solutions in place to sort some of the problem. Um, you will never sort all the problem, and we never will, but progress would be desirable, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, of course, on the other thing is that, the, and this is probably um, a nice segue in, into our ne- uh, another item on our agenda, which is... Um, what's been happening in markets is that if you think, as I do, that interest rates are a big cause of high house prices, we may be about to, to test that hypothesis, and frankly, test that hypothesis to death, because financial markets, stock markets in particular, have been going down a lot lately and been very volatile. All that uncertainty and volatility go together. And that's because financial markets are really worried now about how high inflation is going to go everywhere, but particularly in the United States, because how high inflation goes will determine how high interest rates will go. Stock markets are worried because interest rates are important for the valuation of all assets, um, equities, um, stock prices are ultimately priced off long-term interest rates, as are houses and all forms of property and all forms of assets, financial and otherwise. So we may be about to find out that if interest rates go up a lot, just how sensitive house prices are. And I think in certain hot spots around the world, property prices are already reacting to high interest rates. So we shall see. But the, the stock markets are certainly worried about how high inflation will go, how high interest rates will go, mm-hmm. and therefore how much economic damage is going to be done ultimately by high interest rates. And there are now really... I, th- I think a number of camps in that. I think the, the biggest camp is a, is is one in which 
I'm, I'm putting a toe in, which fears that this now is the 1970s all over again, and that they are going to have to raise interest rates by much more than the market is currently expecting. What do you think? Yeah, before I answer that question, Chris, um, in relation to the housing situation, um, I've been asked by a number of people over the last few couple of weeks, actually, about, you know, they're contemplating buying a house. Should they do it now? Should they wait? Uh, Why anybody would ask me about where house prices are going, I've no idea. But um, it's inflation here at the moment. House price inflation in February was running at year and year rates of about 15%. Okay, so the, the market is still very, very hot. But if you extrapolate forward over the next 12 months, um, I guess I, I have sort of suggested to some extent all along that the European Central Bank, um, you know, would increase interest rates at some stage this year. Um, and there is certainly a sense, and I'll qualify this in a second, that um, rates may rise a lot further than the markets or anybody else currently anticipating. Um, I look at global economic indicators and they are all definitely moving in a worrying direction at the moment, as are financial market indicators like bond yields, equity markets, um, currencies. They're all telling us a very strong story at the minute. Um, and, And where does this leave the Irish housing market? I mean, I'd be amazed, but I have been amazed in the past with the Irish housing market, but I'd be amazed if in the next 12 months, we didn't see a significant deceleration in the housing market here and in house prices. Um, but as I say, the market has surprised me on so many occasions that uh, uh, perhaps I'll be wrong again on this occasion. But I note yesterday that the OECD in Paris um, was talking about the European economy and it was pointing out that real-time economic indicators are all pointing to a slowdown in European growth. And um, it looked at a range of what it calls composite leading indicators that are driven by what they call high-frequency data, such as order books for business, confidence indicators at both the business and the consumer level, um, building permits, new car registrations, that they are all pointing to a European economy that is losing significant momentum at the moment. And there are no surprises there, given the impact that the Ukraine situation has had on energy prices, given what we've seen happen on the inflation front over the last six months, even pre the Ukraine situation. So um, there's definitely an economic story building here externally. And uh, I find it very difficult to imagine how the Irish economy could possibly remain immune to those external forces and indeed the housing market as part of that. Okay, but um, I guess going back to your key question about what's likely to happen on the interest rate front, um, for the Federal Reserve, um, it's it's pretty clear what the Federal Reserve has to do. You know, the US economy um, is still strong. The labor market is strong, albeit there are some real signs of slowdown but still a strong economy that got a lot of fiscal stimulus over the last 18 months or so so that there's it's it's not difficult to sort of argue where u.s interest rates are going i guess the only question is do they go to the sorts of levels like eight eight and a half percent that noah smith was um 
talking about last week. Um, UK rates, Bank of England, I think, is in a bit more of a dilemma. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England last week, was warning about the real chance of recession in the UK economy, yet the Bank of England is still in interest rate tightening mode. Um, and that brings us to the European Central Bank um, that has been extremely reticent to say or do anything um, of a bearish nature over recent months. That narrative is starting to change a little bit. You know, they are talking about um, more aggressive quantitative tightening and the possibility of higher interest rates. But it's a real dilemma for the European Central Bank, you know, based on what the OECD was saying yesterday, which is true, that real time economic indicators are all pointing in a downward direction. You know, increasing interest rates in that sort of environment is not straightforward. But then if you look at what's happening on the inflation front, it makes it a bit more straightforward. So it is a real dilemma for the European Central Bank. And I suspect that the default position will be a more significant tightening in interest rates over the next 12 months than, you know, we currently believe possible. So you'd have to think that all of the risks to interest rates at the moment everywhere are on the upside and that all of the risks to economic growth everywhere are on the downside. Yeah, the situation in Ireland, as we've commented several times, if you just look at the, the domestic scene, it looks absolutely great. And if you look at the global scene, it looks dreadful. Um, I've never seen su quite such a contrast. Um, I've seen that kind of contrast in the past, but never to the extreme point that it is now. It's almost as if you know you, you're sailing and you can see the storm coming over the horizon, but at the moment you're in flat waters, um, nice sea breeze, um, but there is this blooming hurricane out there, and you're just wondering, will it hit you or will it bypass you? And and that I think is the right metaphor to use at the moment because there is a storm coming. It's just how strong and where exactly is it's going to hit uh, for, for countries like. Europe and or regions like Europe and the United States, the race is on, frankly, between the economy slowing of its own accord because of high energy prices and uncertainty and lack of consumer confidence and all those other things that drive economic activity down, the economy slowing down of its own accord and therefore bringing down domestically generated inflation in that way, or the central banks killing the economy via higher interest rates. I still think one of the things that people are really confused about is just the extent to which either the economy doing it by itself or the central banks doing it will bring the overall inflation rate down for as long as we've got high energy prices. Because those high energy prices are external factors. They're not being created by economic growth in any, anywhere, anywhere at all, actually. So the there is a, an underlying tension there between what central banks have to do to control inflation and what they actually can do. Because it could be that because a lot of this inflation is being generated outside, particularly Europe, there is no domestically generated inflation in Europe to speak of, which is a difference with the United States, incidentally. But when you have no domestically generated inflation, what's the point of killing your economy to kill inflation when it's a factor, energy prices, that are not amenable, not, um, not affected by interest rates at all? Um, so I think that that's another thing that has spooked financial markets. It's, it's going back to what I was talking about earlier on, about intractable policy problems. We're very reluctant to label them thus. We are walking around pretending that the central banks 
particularly Europe's central bank, can do something about this inflation problem. And for as long as energy prices stay high, maybe they can't. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the, the theory of inflation is that there are typically two causes. One is demand pull inflation. In other words, there's excess demand in an economy. The other is cost push inflation. In other words, the cost of generating economic activity costs are rising. Um, on the demand pull front, um, you could certainly look at the United States on the back of all of the fiscal and monetary stimulus it has got over the last couple of years. Uh, that increasing interest rates will dampen demand and that that should happen. And that that is one way of tackling part of the inflation problem. But then you look at the euro area and I hear people arguing consistently that the European Central Bank is behind the curve, uh, that it has taken its eye off the ball, etc. But it's very difficult to argue um, in a eurozone context, that there is excess demand in the system, and that that's what's driving inflation. So you look at the other side of the equation, then that you just alluded to, the supply side. Yeah, most of the um, inflation that's coming through the system is being driven by supply side difficulties. So we have energy prices, uh, we have food prices being driven being driven up by um, you know higher fertilizer costs by you know, serious damage to the wheat crop, uh, soya crop, etc. in Russia and Ukraine. Um, I noticed this morning that there is significant flooding uh, forecast in a part of China where there's a lot of wheat grown. Um, and of course, the rice crop in China and India, other countries that produce rice, is in serious difficulty at the moment because of high fertilizer costs. So these, again, are all supply side issues that will drive inflation higher because food is definitely joining energy as a significant driver of inflation. So as you say, increasing interest rates to address the supply side problem doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and I mean, I don't know, do you agree with me? But I, I, yeah, just, I, do. I just don't see the demand issue in Europe. You mentioned the um, theory of inflation. And again, talking of truths that can't be told. The simple fact is, Jim, is as economists, we don't have a unified theory of inflation. Different people have different models, different people have different theories, and we do not have professional agreement as to what actually does cause inflation. And I think that the reason for that is, is that there is no one unique cause for inflation. Is When you ask what causes inflation, the answer is it all depends on where, you, for example, your starting point. If you start with Japan and you go back a few years and you say, okay, well, let's double the money supply in Japan. Will that generate inflation? And the answer is no. They tried it and it didn't work. If you'd ask Milton Friedman, the doyen of monetarists, would doubling inflation, doubling the money supply cause inflation, he would say probably it would. I think even he would say but it might depend on where you start from, because if you double the money supply in the United States, as we have discovered, um, you do get inflation. So it all depends on where you are starting from. It's context dependent. It's never the same thing twice. And if you flip it around and you say, well, if we double interest rates, will you cure inflation? The answer is it all depends. It depends on where you're starting from. It depends on the economy that you're operating. It depends on what type of inflation you have. 
because there are different types. There's wage inflation, there's commodity price inflation. To ordinary people, they ultimately end up looking the same, but it matters which type of inflation you've got. So it all depends. And I think that it's not that economists are hopeless at thinking about and diagnosing and analysing inflation. I suppose the deeper truth is that it's a very, very complex, verging on intractable issue. And um, I've talked a lot about several of those in this podcast, but maybe inflation is another one of those. And one of the things that I think that we do these days in a way that I'm not sure we've ever done in the past is that by we, I mean society, he says pretentiously, is that we pretend these problems are very simple. We understand them and why you, you're an idiot because you obviously don't understand it and you don't know what to do about it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it it certainly strikes me in a European context that um, using higher interest rates, which is likely to happen to try and dampen inflation, is basically, okay, it's not addressing excess demand in the system, but it is destroying the bit of demand that's in the system so that the higher supply side costs become irrelevant because your economy isn't capable of buying them anyway. Because if, if you slow economic activity down sufficiently, the demand for oil um, will fall significantly anyway. So, you know, that that's, I guess, the only way higher interest rates can address this supply side issue. But the economic cost and the social cost of that is very, very significant. So I think, you know, th- those people out there arguing vehemently that the European Central Bank is behind the curve, that it needs to increase interest rates significantly should think about the economic consequences of that sort of policy. But I do, I agree with your broader point there about um, the, these problems are pretty intractable in many ways. And uh, the the set of circumstances we've seen over the last 12 months generating inflationary pressures are highly unusual. Uh, the Ukraine war, the most recent one, but, but prior to that, the whole supply side disruption and supply chain disruption that was caused by COVID-19 over the last couple of years has created um, a really unusual set of circumstances that makes it very difficult to diagnose um, and to try and present viable solutions to solve the problem. So for policymakers, it's a nightmare scenario. Chris, this morning, moving on to a different topic, um, this morning I saw video footage of a beachside house in North Carolina being swept into the sea in a storm. Uh, quite an extraordinary picture. Uh, earlier this week, we had the, I think it was the Global Maritime, uh, sorry, uh, the Global Meteorological Organization was warning about climate change again, the rise in temperatures we're likely to see. Um, and yet in this country at the moment, we have incredible political controversy about turf, for example, um, we have incredible political controversy around the country about the development of onshore and offshore wind, about solar energy and so on. Um, a few years back, we did a joint report for the Irish Wind Energy um, Organization Association looking at the viability of wind energy. And back then, providing wind energy was quite expensive Um, And we predicted at the time that the cost of delivering wind energy would fall significantly over the coming years. Uh, We got a tirade of abuse from the usual sources at that stage, as one always does when one comes out with a view on anything. um, And that's probably not unique to Ireland. 
but if you look at the cost of delivering alternative energy, it has fallen dramatically over the last five years. And um, I really do think it's time to wake up and consider the options here about alternative energy. We need to push ahead as aggressively as possible um, in order to contribute to what is becoming a really serious global issue. It's a no-brainer, Jim. And as you know, it's something I bang on about a lot. And the cost of electricity being produced from fossil fuels at the moment is one thing. The cost of electricity being produced by alternatives is another. You rightly say that a few years ago when we wrote our report, we speculated that the two would become very close. And it might even be the case that for some fossil fuels, uh, the economics of electricity generation from alternatives mean that uh, you could abandon things like coal. So it is proven. But we weren't even, we were right in terms of the direction of travel, Jim. But uh, in terms of where we are today, the cost of producing electricity from gas, on average, around the place, it varies, obviously, with varying gas prices and different geographies. But the, the cost of producing electricity from gas is now roughly four times that of electricity produced by wind. So you're not talking about five or ten percent here, you're talking about factors of four. So I think that, as I say, it's a no-brainer. Just build those offshore and onshore wind farms. Just get on with it. Jim, I think we should call it there. I've actually got to run off to Heathrow to fly to Dublin now. Okay, so, Chris. Um, have ha- have a good flight, and uh, I, l- I look forward to talking to you in Dublin. Cheers, mate. All the best. Cheers, bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.